receive in your name. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Grab a seat. While you do that, good morning. Um, grab a Bible too. We have a few around the side. We're going to Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can take this as a, as a gift from us. You feel free to write in it, take it as your own. Um, my name is Darren. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad to, to have you here this morning. There's a lot of us. So if there's anyone that doesn't have a seat, there's five in the front row. It's called the Splash Zone. And uh, just be, bring your parkas and all of that good stuff. No. Um, last week, Bill talked about kind of setting up this new year. And uh, we have been for the last year and a half as a church teaching through the book of Mark. We've been going verse by verse on uh, in the book of Mark talking about the kingdom of God. Um, it's taken a year and a half. We've had some interruptions, but it is an arduous task, but it's amazing at the same time. Would you agree? And, would you agree? Okay, come on. It's 11. I know it's a little crowded, but we can, we can deal with it. You guys good? Are we awake? Do I need to share a story about me or something like... Make you awkwardly laugh um, uncomfortably? No, I won't do that. Um, so we're, we're, in, we're going back into the book of Mark. So I get the task, task this morning of reviewing a year and a half of teaching verse by verse. So buckle up, grab your Bible. We're going to be looking at the last 10 chapters of Mark. I'm, it won't go that long. I promise we'll be done in about 35 minutes. But my goal this morning is to simply set us up for the next four months as we look through the rest of the book of Mark trying to understand, define, and articulate what the kingdom of God is all about. And so, a couple of background thoughts, and then we'll jump in. Mark, first of all, is written by a guy named John Mark. He writes this, this letter around 66 AD, and he's writing to the church that's in Rome. And he's writing with one purpose. He wants to remind the church of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. They've been going through persecution. They're literally being fed to lions. They're being killed on the, uh, um, burned alive. They're being killed in the Colosseum. And, and people are, are being murdered for believing in Jesus. And they're beginning to allow their faith to diminish. And so Mark writes them as an encouragement, giving them the story of Jesus' life in three years and kind of as a reminder to say, this is what it means to follow Christ with your life. So that's kind of the purpose. The book is broken up into two parts. This is really important. For all of you Bible theologians out there. No, it's, it's, it's kind of important. No. So a major two parts. Ready? Mark 1 through 8 is part 1. And Mark 9 through 16 is part 2. How clever is that? So Mark 1 through 8 is uh, who is Jesus and what is his message? And Mark 9 through 16 is um, why is he here and what is his mission? Okay, so we've been looking at the first part and we've entered a bit into the second part. So that's a little bit of the background. Let's go to Mark chapter 1 and we'll jump in. Verse 15 says this. Um, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I want to use this verse because Mark uses this verse to frame the entire gospel of Mark. We have the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So what I want to do this morning is look through the last 10 chapters through these lens. Let's start with the time has come. Are you with me? All right, here we go. The time has come. When Jesus comes onto the scene in the first century talking about a time, every single Jewish boy and girl knew exactly what time he was talking about. If, you, if your wife was nine months pregnant and she comes in with a bag and says, honey, it's time, you know exactly what she means, right? 
She doesn't mean take out the trash. She means let's get our stuff and go to the hospital. Are you with me? When Jesus says that the time has come, he's referring to an Old Testament concept called the age to come. The age to come is seen all throughout the Old Testament, written by Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Nehemiah, Joel, um, Jeremiah, Daniel. It's a concept that refers to a time when God would enter back into history. He would enter back into the Israelites' history and restore and renew everything, all of creation, back to himself. This was the, the, the concept of the age to, age to come. See, what had happened in the story of Israel is that at one point they were freed from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And they were told to, to live in a way that reveals God to the rest of the world. And they didn't do that. So you read in the Old Testament that they're, they're, they go to exile. They, they lose the temple. Things are destroyed. And they, they lose the privilege of being God's chosen people. But during that time of exile, the Old Testament prophets whispered, and wrote about a time that God would break into history once and, once and for all and redeem Israel and all of creation back to himself. And this is called the age to come. And the age to come would be marked by these things. It would be marked by healing. It would be marked by this Jewish concept called shalom, which is more than just peace or a greeting. It has to do with wholeness. It has to do with right order. It has to do with God bringing harmony to all creation like it was back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's going to be marked by forgiveness, by new hearts and new spirits. It will be marked by the Holy Spirit. The people of God, according to Joel, would be filled with the Holy Spirit. They would prophesy. They would dream dreams. It would be marked by justice. It would be marked by the resurrection of the dead. And it would be marked by God ruling over all of the nations. Um, and so we see that so God ruling means God's way, God's authority, God's purposes would, would rule, would, would, would reign over all the nations. This is the idea of the age to come. So when Jesus says it's time, people are beginning to whisper in the first century, this is happening. He's saying the time has been fulfilled or the time has come. It's literally like he's saying it's breaking out in this moment. God is acting. All of this is present. It's coming. It's here. It would have been electrifying. It would have been epic. It was an announcement. People would have been following it. But in order to understand what Jesus does, we have to understand that it's, we have to look through G, at Jesus and the Gospel of Mark through the narrative of the entire Old Testament and this particular concept that there was a time coming where God would break in. That's what he means by the time. Are you with me? Yes. All right. All right, man. I did a lot of work just now, and I don't feel I got a, a quality response. <laughs> I'm out of breath already, and there's 36 more points to my sermon. No, I'm just kidding. Just, no, I'm serious, 37. Um, no, I'm just, I'm just, yeah, seriously. Um, okay. <laughs> the kingdom of God. So, the time has come. That's what that means. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, here's something interesting. The kingdom of God is talked about more than anything else in the Gospels by Jesus. For those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, we've been a follower for a while, do you know that he talks about the kingdom of God more than love, more than prayer, more than money, more than anything else? He talks about the kingdom of God. And oftentimes, it's just this nebulous concept that most Christians don't understand. But this is the primary message of Jesus Christ. And what's also fascinating is that in the four Gospels that we have, he never defines the kingdom. 
He simply describes what it's like. He, he would proclaim that it's here. He would describe, hey, it's like a, a, a tree or it's like a, a seed being planted. It's like a farmer in a field. And he also embodied it. So he, he proclaims it. He describes it. He embodies it. But if I was going to use some language to help us define, because theologians have done this throughout history, to define this concept, the kingdom of God, it's this. First of all, it's the sovereign reign or rule of God. It's what life would be like if God was in charge. You know, when you're in elementary school and the substitute teacher comes in and you can mess around and do everything and turn the classroom upside down and then the teacher comes back and it's like everything's back in order. You don't want to pull your card. You raise your hand. You don't interrupt. You know what I'm talking about? It's not like a bad thing, but it's like what, what life would be like if God was in charge. Or you could say it's the way God intended life to be in the first place. So when we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about life marked by the things that are beautiful, are good, are right, are just. The way life was intended to be in the first place. Read Genesis 1 and 2. That gives you a better picture of what life is supposed to look like under God's reign and rule. Or you could say it's a reality to be experienced. This is a tough one, but let's grasp this for a second. Jesus talks about the only way to get his kingdom is to follow him as a disciple. The only way to get this idea of the kingdom is to live your life with him, to follow him. He describes, he'll, he'll say, hey, the kingdom of God is like a plant. It's, he says all these parables. But after he'll teach these parables, he'll say, well, at the end of the day, the only way you're going to get it is if you follow me as a disciple. So it's like me trying to describe a song to you that you've never heard. I could say it's beautiful. It sounds like a movie intro. It's, it's like this warrior cry. And you're like, okay, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. But then I play the song and you're like, yes. All of those words make sense. I get it. The kingdom is a reality to be experienced. You with me? Or you could say that it's a way of life embodied by Jesus. So, those are the, 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 the definitions, the broad definitions of what the kingdom is like. Let's look at how Jesus embodied the kingdom of God. What his life was marked by in the gospel of Mark. So we're going to read through Mark 1 through 10 slowly the whole way through. And nobody likes that idea. So no, go to Mark chapter 1, verse 17. I'm full of them and you're not laughing. I'm telling you. But again, I'm not a comedian. Um, let's go to Mark chapter 1. I'm sorry, verse 25. So Jesus proclaims the message, that this kingdom idea that the time has come. God's breaking in. He's acting. This reality is here. And, and then he begins to embody it. So we're going to read through a couple of passages and see what this kingdom looks like through the life of Jesus. So I'm going to read through a bunch of them and make some observations. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 25. Jesus goes into the synagogue. He preaches this message. And a demon stands up. And Jesus says to him, be quiet, come out of him. Verse 26, the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He, gives, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. When Jesus comes on the scene, embodying the kingdom of God, he sets the captives free. He teaches with authority, and he brings order to chaos. These are glimpses of the kingdom of God. Um, go, let's go to uh, chap verse 30 with me. Chapter 1, verse 30. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. 
That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he brings the power of healing. He has the power to heal in his life. We read tons of those stories. Let's go to verse 40. It's still in chapter 1. Verse 40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant, or a better translation is full of compassion. It's the same Greek word. It means that there's like a, a stomach movement that you have to respond. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now here's the thing. In the first century, you, if you had leprosy, you didn't just need to be cl- uh, healed. You didn't really need healing. You needed to be cleansed. You needed to be pronounced clean by a priest in a temple. You see, this is what happens. When you are announced leper in the first century, you have to move away from Jerusalem into a camp. You are no longer able to go to the temple to worship God, to offer your sacrifices for your sin. You, you, you're uh, isolated from your family, from the rest of the nation of Israel. And you wander around. Literally, it says in the Mishnah in the Old Testament, if you read in Leviticus, you have to keep yourself dirty and disgusting, grow your hair out. And you have to wear ugly clothes that smell to keep people from you. And you walk around. And if you come into town yelling, unclean, 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 if you were Diagnosed with it, it was, a, it was like a life sentence. Some rabbis said they were called the walking dead. You didn't need to be healed. You needed to be cleansed. Only a priest in the temple can do that. But Jesus comes in the power of the kingdom to those that were diagnosed with something that couldn't be clean and says, I am willing. He brings restoration. A son or daughter that was full of, uh, of Israel that was that had leprosy, was no longer able to be considered the son or daughter of Israel. Jesus comes and restores them to wholeness. He gives them back their lives. That's what Jesus does. That's the power of the kingdom. He has the power of restoration and shalom. Are you with me? All right, we're getting warmed up. Okay, go to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. There's a story where this, these guys, these friends bring this paralyzed guy on a mat and they dig up a hole in the roof and they send this guy down. And when, the, when Jesus sees these men, he says this, knowing that this man's paralyzed, this is what he says first. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. He goes on to heal him, but Jesus has the power to forgive sins. He brings forgiveness Go to Mark uh, chapter 2, verse 17. I love this story. Jesus is um, having a meal with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. He's hanging out with the people that you don't hang out with if you're a prophet, if you're a rabbi, if you're somewhat decent at all. You don't hang out with sinners and tax collectors in the first century because that meant you were like them. That meant you were one of them. And when the Pharisees, the people that built a religion around following rules and regulations and keeping things right and wrong and saying that holiness is defined by who you hang out with or who you don't hang out with, when the Pharisees begin to question him and question his motives, Jesus responds with a statement. He says, um, verse 17, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. 
Can you imagine this provocative message in the first century? A system built around who you hang out with and who you don't. And Jesus says, no, I hang out with these guys. Jesus comes announcing the good news to everyone. The kingdom of God is not for the religious elite, not for those that actually have money in their bank account, not for those that know how to do things well. It's for those that are addicted, for those that are broken, those that have no clue at all. I want them. This message is for them too. No amens, really. Thank you. All by myself. Okay, that's cool. The kingdom is for everyone. Mark chapter 4, verse 38. Here's another story where we see Jesus do something crazy. He tells his disciples to go across the, the sea at nighttime, which you would never do in the first century. They believed, first century Jewish superstition, that the sea was possessed by demons. Or they were controlled by other gods. It wasn't Yahweh. It was just other forces of nature, forces of power, of personalities that had power over the waves and the sea. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? There was a giant uh, storm overtaking the boat. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still, which is in Greek, shut the hell up. I said it. It's Greek. It's Greek. I'm just, I'm just telling you what it means. <laughs> then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And the disciples asked each other, Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? When Jesus comes, he brings right order to creation. It's like he's restoring the earth Back to the way it should have been in the first place. Some scholars say that this is a story where where, uh, uh, Jesus takes on the the rightful place as the new Adam, which Paul talks about in the the New Testament. He becomes the new Adam. And some scholars will even go to say, and I'm just going to share it, I'm not going to say whether I believe it or not, that the first, uh, when God created uh, Adam and Eve in in Genesis 1 and 2, that we, we might have had the power and capacity to tell the systems and the storms to, to water this part of the Garden of Eden, and they would obey. Some scholars say that. You, you decide for yourself. <laughs> Mark, chapter seven, Mark chapter 5. He brings right order to creation. Verse 35, it says this, While Jesus was speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Your daughter is dead. Why bother teaching anymore? Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing this, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. Verse 40, after he put all the crowd outside, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with them. He went into the chi- where the child was. He took her, and the hand, took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. Jesus raises the dead. He takes the diagnosis, death, and brings life. The power of the kingdom has the last word, doesn't it? That's right. Let's come on. Let's get some participants. The power of the kingdom has the last word. I don't know if you've been diagnosed with something. You've been told this is going to be the way you live for the rest of your life. This marriage isn't going to work out. This addiction is what you have to live with. You know, this symptom is, is, is there. That doesn't have the last word, period. Okay? 
kingdom of God. Let's go to Mark 7 this time. So Jesus is uh, hanging out with some people, his disciples. I love this. They, they don't wash their hands properly. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders I told you about already, who have built a system on who you hang out with, they also built a system on, on how well you wash yourself. Because what defiles you is what you touch or eat. That's the, the religion of the day. The religion is you don't hang out with people. You don't do certain things. You don't touch the right, wrong thing. If you touch this meat, it's bad. You're, you're unclean. If you hang out with this person, you're unclean. So they have these laws and regulations. The Pharisees had 600 and something laws of the, the law of Moses. I'm not thinking, I don't know off the top of my head. And over 1,300 laws they added to it. So they have this religious system on all these things. And they come to the disciples because they're not washing their hands right. And Jesus says, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their hearts, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. In saying this, Jesus redefined the the current religion. In saying this, he redefined the religion. He redefined life. In saying this, he, he offers a new way. The new way is that the kingdom of God is not about all of our activity. It's about our hearts. God's not after us singing songs. He's after our heart in worship. You with me? Send it. Send it. Text it. Tweet it. Let's do it. That's a, that's, a good, that's a good tweet right there. Somebody do that. Dash Darren. No, don't. Don't. Holy Spirit or something. Eight, uh, chapter, chapter 8, 25. So his disciples are along for this journey. Oh, wait. Um, no, oh, this is a different one. I messed up. Oh, chapter 8, verse 25. It says this. Uh, Jesus finds this blind guy and he says, Once more, Jesus put his hands on his eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. It says that Jesus gives sight to the blind. Jesus does all of this stuff. He says this kingdom is at hand. You can touch it. You can experience it. You can participate in it. And this is what it's marked by. Look at Jesus' life. It's marked by setting captives free, healing, restoration, forgiveness, raising the dead, redefining life, giving sight to the blind. Does that sound awfully like the age to come? Does the kingdom of God sound like God breaking into this present age and bringing a whole new way of life? That's pretty exciting, huh? It's pretty cool. He participates in it. He demonstrates it. He proclaims it. He embodies it. But then he does something even more outrageous. You have time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he says, repent and believe the good news. This is far more subversive than anything else. Most of us have heard this as, all you have to do is quit your sinful ways and believe that Jesus has given you a ticket into heaven and one day when you die, you'll go to that place and everything will be full of hope and healing and joy and you'll worship God with the, you know, the angels with the wings and the halos. You, have you heard this message in Christianity? Have you heard this particular message? Oh, just turn away from your sinful ways and wait for that day. Talk about what Jesus talked about and wait for the day that he comes fully redeeming it. And then you'll go into heaven. You'll be zapped out of here. You won't be left behind. And you will be one of those few chosen elite. Have you heard this message? Do you think that's the message Jesus died for? 
When you look at the age to come in the kingdom of God reality, the life that he embodied that has to do with healing, restoration, forgiveness, resurrection, life, here and now, justice, peace, on earth as it is in heaven. Is he waiting for us to go to heaven or is he trying to bring heaven to earth? Repent and believe is an invitation. It's an invitation to become, become a certain kind of person. Repentance means metanoia. Or, I'm sorry, the Greek word is metanoia. And it's, it's a simple word that means to turn around or to t- change directions. The Jewish word is teshuva, and that means to come home, which I think is far greater than to turn around. But that's, it's okay, Greek. So you have this idea of turn around, and then you have this Greek word belief. And it's not an intellectual acknowledgement of something. It's an active participation and an understanding. You know the difference between understanding and and knowledge? You can Google something and, and know something, but to understand something is wisdom. So the Greek, if you put those two words together in Greek, it's a military concept that means to let go of your agenda, align yourself with with the kingdom of agenda, and become a full participant in this new way of life. Let me just rephrase this for us, because this is so important. Jesus is saying, align yourself with this announcement. That God is breaking into history, that the kingdom of God is at your fingertips, it's in your midst, that you, you, you can see it happening, it's bursting out, life, justice, peace, righteousness, all of that stuff. But become a full participant in that life, here and now. Spread that stuff around, is what he's saying. Join the revolution, be a revolutionary of this new reality. Don't wait with a ticket in your hand. Become someone that embodies justice, peace, shalom, healing. The invitation, which is so provocative, is to become the kind of person that actively participates in the spreading of the kingdom of God. I'm not talking about standing on a soapbox. I'm talking about having a life that bursts with holiness, healing, righteousness, resurrection, life. That you pray in a way that when someone who's sick comes to you, even with what little faith you have, you have this, you have the audacity to say, God, I want healing for this person on earth as it is in heaven. What's your theology there? Do you think that stuff died out? Because here's the point. He invites you here and now to embody that message. But here, the only way we can do this as if we follow Jesus with our lives. So all of this stuff is great and he leaves it with an invitation that at the end of the day, yes, it's come. Yes, the kingdom is awesome and beautiful and cool, God, you've invited me into this. But at the end of the day, you have to decide. You have to choose. The only way to get this is to follow Christ with your life as a disciple of Jesus. I'm not talking about Sunday Sitting in church right here. I'm talking about 24-7 discipleship to Christ. So here's what we see when Jesus invites people. We're going to go back to the book of Mark real quick. Just a couple more thoughts. Mark chapter 1 verse 17. Jesus says, this is what's real. The kingdom's here. The time has come. Come join this revolution. And then he goes... 
to find some disciples. Now, this is what's fascinating. If you were a rabbi in the first century, you would go to the synagogue. You would find the, the smartest, the brightest, the best of the best of the best student to be your disciple. It was a privilege. Because if a rabbi came to you and said, come follow me, he's telling you that he, the rabbi, thinks you, whoever you are, could do what he does, could live like him, could know what he knows, that you could actually be like that rabbi. This is first century rabbinic discipleship stuff. But Jesus doesn't go to the synagogue, does he? He goes to the shore and he finds some fishermen in their boat. You see, the fact that they're fishermen lets us know that they didn't get selected to be disciples. They didn't make the cut in their system of school that they went through from age uh, 1 to 5 and, and 5 to 15. They didn't make the cut. Some rabbi didn't invite them to be a disciple. But he goes to these fishermen with nets in their hand and he says, come, follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. Jesus said to these, to these bench warming nobodies, they're, they're the people that don't have a clue, you can be like me. Do you, see, do you see how significant this is? What's great about the discipleship, we're going to keep looking real quick, is that if Jesus would have chose anyone else, I think we'd all be in trouble. He chooses the least likely people to follow him. He chooses those that are impossible to show you that it, you're, that it is possible. He's got a zealot next to a tax collector, a guy that's sworn to kill tax collectors, and they're his disciples, and he's like, yep, this is my crew, I got it. I mean, I don't know if you're as bad as, as a, I mean, every time the disciples, let's read some of the stories. Uh, so in chapter one, Jesus says, hey, you can be like me. In chapter three, he appointed 12 that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. When, Jesus, when Mark uses this particular line, to preach, have authority, and to drive out demons, he's basically saying to do the stuff that Jesus does. So everything you read, healing, exorcisms, walking on water, calming the storms, the expectation is that the disciples of Christ do that. So in Mark chapter 1, you can be like, by Mark 3, he appoints him and says, hey, hang out with me, you're going to be doing this stuff. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus teaches a bunch of parables. In 34, he did not say anything to anyone without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. So he teaches his disciples everything. Mark chapter 6, check this out. We're talking about quick discipleship. We're not talking about sitting in a room and learning a bunch of stuff. We're talking about hanging out with Jesus and him saying... Go hang out over here. So he calls the 12 and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over impure spirits. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people. And guess what? They healed them. Mark chapter three, you're my guys. By Mark six, these ragtag nobodies are casting out demons, healing the sick, doing the stuff that Jesus did. In the story of Mark, they don't even know who Jesus is yet. Not until chapter 8, which we'll look at. Two thoughts. How many have this type of discipleship with Jesus? How many of you have been invited in to a Christianity that has to do with reading your Bible and attending church? 
has nothing to do with living a life resourced by the kingdom of God. That's the goal. Mark chapter 8, in the, in the story of Mark, um, he, he asks his disciples, and this is the turning point where the whole book shifts, and we're, gonna, we're, we're in chapter 11, so we'll see this. But Jesus asks, what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus says, I'm sorry, Peter says that you are the Messiah. He declares Jesus and who he is. The question in Mark 1 through 8 is, who is Jesus? He's the Messiah, the Son of God, the guy that brings the kingdom of God. But then the turning point is, in, is from here on out, the rest of our discipleship has to be made clear. Here's the mission that Jesus brings. Mark chapter 9, um, and we'll come to an end in just a second. Uh, he says this, uh, verse 31. Because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered out, out to human, over to human hands. He will be killed, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. You have to realize that Mark's writing was some humor. Okay, could you imagine the disciples of Jesus watching all the stuff they did, arguing about who's the greatest? Like John saying to Peter, well, I've, I've cast out 16 demons. I've healed 37 people. I, well, I, I was the one that broke the bread before Jesus gave it to 5,000 people. I stepped over the boat and got on water. You didn't even get out of the boat. Could you imagine how ridiculous? I mean, but we get it. We're just as petty, right? I gave this much today. I, I went to the community garden and did my hour of service. I opened my home to my community group. I am who I am. I set up early on Sundays because like, Billy was desperate. and <laughs> He was. Didn't he sound a little desperate? Like, I was like, if it was a cartoon, you'd have these giant signs that said, help me, help me. You know, like it was just funny. Um, Anyways, <laughs> I'll leave him alone. Okay, he's amazing. Billy's awesome. Billy carries a lot. Billy put this PowerPoint together, actually. Um, yeah. I think it just goes to show us that even the closest people to Christ missed it quite a few times. But Jesus' response to them is this. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. Do you realize what he, he does? Is that he says that this, this time is here. All of this is bursting forth. God's reign, God's, God's way of life is here. He invites us to become full participants. We're, we're, we start following Jesus and we still get it wrong. But then he wants to make it perfectly clear. His mission is love. And his mission is to the cross. The next five chapters that we talk about are all about Jesus and him going to the cross. You see, in order to get the kingdom of God, in order, order to grasp what Jesus is talking about, you have, it will cost you your entire life. There was no such thing as a Sunday Christian or moral moralist in Jesus' mind. It's all or nothing. If you want to follow Christ, you're going to, he's going to lead you straight to the cross. That's how you'll experience resurrection life. If you really want to get this message, you have to follow Jesus with everything you have. 
That's what it means for the kingdom to be a reality, to be experienced. You'll never get it until you live it. And the greatest thing is that he invites you in. The greatest thing that the message is still the same today and it will be tomorrow. And the invitation is the same. Wherever you are, he'll use you where, you're, where you are with whatever you have. See, this is what I love about this message is that you can't just talk about it from the side. You can't just sing about it on Sundays. You can't just give to it and expect something to happen. You can't just read and intellectualize it. You have to experience this for yourselves. And when I read the book of Mark, it's fascinating. It brings life. When I hear about the kingdom of God, I don't think of the Sunday school I grew up in. I think of the stuff that you hear whispers about in the third world nation. Some of us have experienced here at the garden. We see healing. We see life. We see things bursting from the seams. You see, Jesus invites you to become this kind of person, the person that spreads this message. Not, hey, turn or burn, grab a ticket and hold on tight. We're waiting for him to come back. No, but he wants you to be resourced with the power of heaven in your everyday, ordinary, nine to five, everyday life. That's the message of Jesus. That's the goal. That's what Mark is all about. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means for a church. This is, this is the message of Mark. Jesus is looking for everyday, ordinary people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, living on mission, resourced with the kingdom of God. How, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, we plant gardens. We feed the hungry. We care for the widows and the orphans. We paint beautiful pictures. We create beautiful music. We educate people about budgeting and finances and how to live a healthy life. We teach people how to care for themselves. We care for their needs. We mentor uh, students and children. We go to schools as students with intentionality that God has placed us exactly where we are with exactly who we need to be and we're supposed to live there intentionally. We give generously. We welcome in strangers to our home. Let me say that one more time. Paul says this to the church. Welcome strangers into your home. Show hospitality to strangers. We go to India and proclaim the good news. We go to our job with the purpose of God's mission and calling in the same way that we go to India. This is what it means to live in the kingdom of God here and now. We live with joy, peace, patience, kindness. We confess our sins. We, we confess our brokenness. We apologize when we do wrong. We ask for forgiveness. We extend forgiveness over and over and over again. We love our spouses like Christ loves us. We love well, we serve well, we sacrifice everything, we give everything we have, and somehow when we do that, the kingdom is demonstrated. Life bursts forth. Heaven comes to earth. That's it. Simple, huh? <laughs> That's how we raise the dead. You become the kind of person that learns to pray, God, your kingdom and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. This is what the gospel of Mark is all about. And this is why we're going so slow through this, through this gospel. There's no better message than that, huh? All of you 
have been invited to play a part. To be resourced and released for heaven on earth. Amen? A few questions and we'll, we'll close in some worship and prayer. It's pretty uh, significant. One, uh, the disciples were holding their nets. Their nets represented their security, their job, their purpose, their identity, their life, everything. It represented their day-to-day activity and they drop it. Because they knew discipleship costs everything. My question for you is, what are the nets you're carrying that you need to let go of? What's hindering you from discipleship? What's keeping you from becoming a full participant in this reality? Is it your time management? Are you lazy like me? (laughs) You just want to sleep the extra 30 minutes on a Sunday morning because I'm going to go preach anyways? Rather than spending time with God in the morning that has nothing to do with my job. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is it addiction? I mean, addiction. Is it just having a little too much of alcohol? Is it, is it just getting a little too angry, a little too quick? Do you know what I'm talking about? Is it not resting? Not taking a Sabbath and recognizing that God's created you as a being, not a doer. Primary. I mean, I think that's the busyness is a God of our age and we need to kill that now. You are designed for a day of rest to do nothing. Not clean the stuff at home that you didn't have time for, but to do nothing. Some of you need to hear that and say amen right now. Come on, that's going to kill our generation. I don't know what it is. There's so many significant things that it could be. It could be so small. It could be the, the, the... unwillingness to simply say yes to waking up 10 minutes early. I mean, it could be as small as that and you're missing your, that's a net you have to let go of. You with me? Write those down. What are those? Do something about it. It's not about guilt and shame, but let's, let's take on this discipleship thing. You with me? Say it one more time. Last question. Oh, I love, I love when we, when we actually believe that God can do stuff. We've experienced it. We've seen healings. We've seen words spoken over people that brought inner healing and transformation and life. I mean, we, the, the empowered thing that we're putting on this conference, it's really just us recognizing that there is a Holy Spirit who wants to desperately break into our everyday lives. And we want to we train people and, and resource our entire community on how to be better recipients, how to be better givers, how to be better prayers, if that's a word, how to, how to just learn to walk in the Spirit. Some of us hear that and we're sitting here going, Shalom, healing, justice, that I, I desperately long for that. Some of you read the story of the leper, the diagnosis that you're unclean, and you're like, yes, I'm depressed, isolated, and alone. I need someone to come over and speak truth and acceptance and restoration. Some of you have been said, uh, you, you, someone you has been given a diagnosis of death, and God wants to speak life over that. God wants to heal today. So the question is, where do you need the kingdom of God to break into your life? Are you willing to stand and receive prayer? Are you willing to simply say, I need it. I want it. Do you know what I'm talking about? We're all disciples. We all need to let go of something. But some of us are in desperate need for the kingdom to break forth. We're going to have Pete come up. We're going to open us up into prayer right now. I just want to 
ask everyone just to close your eyes. I just sense maybe we can pray for some people. Um, Some of you need the courage to let go of those nets. God's already spoken to you. You look at your life and you're like, yes, this relationship has to go or it has to change. Yes, uh, my friends are telling me to leave this thing behind, but God's whispered in it that I have to stay. And you need to stand firm your ground. Maybe that's what discipleship looks like. Maybe some of you are going to wake up early and read read the Bible and start praying. Whatever it is for your discipleship, God's calling you, do that. But some of you are here and you just desperately need the touch of God. And I'm not saying we bring the touch of God. I'm just saying we want to pray for that. So if you need, I just felt, why don't we do this? All right, if you need, if you need uh, the kingdom to break in, if you just, anything I said, you just feel compelled to, to receive prayer, would you just stand up where you are? We just want to pray for you. We'll, we're not going to embarrass you. We'll, we'll all stand around you in a little bit. But if you just need prayer for any of those things, would you just stand up? We'll have an, a time of ministry. Don't be afraid. Thank you. Just stay standing. You can keep your eyes closed. This is a safe place. We don't have to worry about judgment. We're talking about needing God's, God's uh, life in our life. Thank you. I don't want to drag this on, but I just want to pray courage. That some of you, your heart's beating fast. You need to stand. We need to learn how to pray for you as a church. So um, just be willing to, to move if, if invited. Thank you very much. Okay, there's a, a few people standing around the room. So uh, here's what we're doing. Look at the people standing next to you, and would you just stand with them now and place a hand on their shoulder? Pete's going to play some music. We'll sing one song, but here's what we're going to do. We're just going to pray for them. So if you're new to our church, this is how we pray. We just ask God to minister. Don't jump in and saying something. Just say, God, would you bless this person? Minister to this person. Touch this person. And then just go ahead and pray for them. God would touch them and bless them. And we'll worship and then we'll all come back and close.